Hey everyone, my name is Dan Stegman. I'm the pastor of Pine Glen Alliance Church in Lewistown, Pennsylvania, Central Pennsylvania. And today I have the unique privilege of interviewing the host of the Before You Quit podcast, Mitch Schultz. Uh, as you know, uh, Mitch has conducted dozens of interviews on the podcast before, but rarely uh, has he been interviewed before. So this was my idea. I approached Mitch with this. I, I thought this somebody needs to interview you, Mitch. And so <laughs> I'm excited that he that he agreed to it. Um, I'm not a stranger to the podcast. Mitch has interviewed me uh, multiple times before. And one of the things that's, uh, I guess, uh, not unique to me, but one of the things that uh, defines me is that I just love people. I love stories. As far back as I can remember, I've always enjoyed a good biography. And so, Mitch and I, we've never met in person, even though it, I, it feels like I know him really, really well. I know you, Mitch, <laughs> but I want to get to know you better, Mitch, and I want to know something of the working of God and mm. his grace in your life. And so I'm really, really excited for this. Uh, the Apostle Paul, he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that's mm. true of every Christian. The story of every believer is a story of God and his grace and his mighty workings. Um, so I, I want to be looking for evidence of God and his grace in your life, Mitch. And so I, I guess I want to start off by asking you the question that you've asked me and you've probably asked most of the people you've interviewed, and that is, what is it that drives you? What is it that you yeah. are passionate about? Yeah, yeah, that's always the first question I ask, and it's a, it's a great way to start. So, first of all, thank you, Daniel, for coming up with this idea, and uh, I I can already feel what it must be like to be on this end now, and, uh, and it's I'm excited, uh, not really nervous, but really excited to do this. And, uh, and by the way, you're starting out great, so I would encourage you to start your own podcast. I think you do really well. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it's interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm 61 years old. I've been a pastor for uh, 34 years, but been licensed about 38 years now. And I've been in this ministry, which included some, some pastoring in the last eight years. I did an interim one year, so, and then I preach a lot as well. But um, I, I find myself asking different questions uh, now, now that I asked when I first started out. So I, I think I'm driven by something different now than what drove me early on in ministry. And uh, in fact, I've done, I've done some talks even with missionaries overseas on that subject. I've got a particular talk where I discuss, you know, the different things that drive us when we're older than what drives us when we're younger. Um, and it really just sum it up. It, it's really a shift from what to who. Uh, I think early on, uh, it's what I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to change the world. I wanted to win the lost and disciple hundreds mm -hmm. of people and have a great impact in this world. And, uh, and, you know, I can look back and say, yeah, there's, you know, uh, good things have happened. There's been failure, disappointments. Uh, but I'm driven more now by, by, you know, who can I touch today? And, 
how can I be an influence to someone? Uh, if I see someone walking and they're obviously walking because they don't have a transportation, I'm going to pick them up and take them somewhere. And there's a little opportunity there to, to share Christ. So, uh, so I'd say really what drives me is, is uh, just being available to the Lord daily. And, um, and, you know, of course, as a grandparent, my, you know, I'm driven to uh, do what I can to partner with my kids, my daughter, and, and raising two godly kids. That drives me. That's, I see that as my mission now, uh, being a grandparent to two uh, little rascals. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Amen. Well, that's great. Praise the Lord. One of the things that is pretty unique about your life is that you have lived a very global life. Um, mm -hmm. Eight countries that you've lived in, is that right? Well, if you count Texas, yes. Uh, so it'd be, it'd be seven. Uh, <laughs> so I wrote, I wrote it down, actually. I've lived, and this is for at least a year, uh, Indonesia, Germany, Belgium, Australia, Malaysia, the U.S., and England. Now, Australia was, it was a summer, so it wasn't a full, full year. Um, and then uh, as far as the, the states, we've lived in Indiana, Texas, North Carolina three times, uh, Georgia four times, and Wisconsin. So, uh, so yeah, it's uh, just, you know, great, great opportunity to have been in a lot of places. Praise the Lord. Well, we share something. I haven't lived in uh, eight countries or seven countries, but I've lived in two, and I grew up in Canada. So I'm... I'm That's right. I'm yes. I'm a bit of a foreigner, but I'm, I'm now a, a U.S. citizen. I've lived here for 15 mm -hmm. years. I love the States, love America. Yeah, um, and I, uh, by the way, I, I grew up as a Dutch citizen. My, my parents went to the mission field from Europe in 1958. And, uh, but we grew up in an in a, uh, you know, American board, a school boarding system or boarding school system. So I became an American when I was 32. I, I met my wife here in Tacoa and became a resident and an American. So yeah, de definitely we do have that in common. Yeah. And you can't help but be shaped by that. I mean, when, when mm -hmm. you lived in that many different countries, you've been exposed to that many different cultures and, and even serving as a missionary in the UK I mean, that's, that's going to impact you. But I guess that the question that I want to ask, what was it like growing up as a missionary kid in Papua, which is, mm -hmm. that's, uh, is that Indonesia? Help me with my geography. Yeah. Yeah. Papua. So Papua is the west side of, of the island of Papua or New Guinea. Uh, the east side is independent. It's, it's currently called New Guinea. Uh, Papua used to be Irian Jaya, now Papua, it belongs to the uh, country of Indonesia. Okay. And uh, so, so, yeah, born, born and raised there. Uh, we, would, we would do our home assignments or furloughs in Europe early on. And I'll tell the story a little bit later of how we actually landed in the States. Uh, but yeah, you might, I don't think you realize how much you're being shaped by, by experiences like that until you're older. And I think from the outside, it might look like, oh, wow, that, that's so cool. You know, you've had so much experience. But I and I and I do I do say that I benefited a lot from all that. But, uh, you know, I, I look I'm rather introspective and, and I even look at my own restlessness in myself 
And, and I can attribute that to having to constantly pick up the move, you know, and uh, I know people that grow up in the military will say that as well. And, uh, and so I, I, for years, I found myself every, even in ministry stuff, because after three, four years, I felt like I want to change now. I want something different. And, uh, and since we moved to Tacoa six years ago, it's the first time that I've, I've not wanted to move and do something different. Um, but, uh, so yeah, it shaped me in a very positive way. It, uh, uh, I joke around a little bit about this, but I think there's probably a lot of truth to that. I, I, I love my family so much, but I think there's a level of unhealthy attachment to my family. Mm. And, uh, and so I'm still working through that, you know, I mean, uh, as you know, there's been lots as well, which I think contributes to that. But, uh, but yeah. You suffered depression as a child, and, and that's something, mm-hmm. depression in our culture is not something strange. It's all over the place. Mm-hmm. But I found it, um, it seemed to me that it was kind of rare to hear of that uh, with the child. Um, is it rare? And, and maybe if you could just share a little bit about your experience and, and how yeah. you through that. Yeah, I, I I believe it is rare. Um, I at, at least the 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 level that uh, I experienced depression, the depth of it. Uh, I don't think it, and and there's there's some interesting dynamics with missionary kids, particularly sent off to boarding school at the age of six, which has been uh, you know the experience of my generation of missionary kids. You know, thankfully that's not the case now. Uh, but I was one of the few where it, it exhibited itself in, in a severe, you know, uh, depression or, or breakdown. Uh, I would say even a psychotic breakdown. Um, you know, my brother experienced the same things that I did, my sisters as well. And we all have dealt with it differently. I just happened to have been the one that dealt with it in, in an extreme way. Uh, but that doesn't take away the fact that the effect has been the same on a lot of kids and, and some, some kids just, uh, just stuff things and, and pack in the drawers. And then years later, they've got to deal with it, you know? So, so mine was like an explosion, whereas for others, it's a, you know, it's a gradual leak, but it's still, you know, can have the same, same detrimental impact. But yeah, I was in sixth grade, uh, halfway through sixth grade, we had been in Germany the year before, I remember my sixth grade being super happy, very content. Second semester, uh, came back from vacation to school and just could never get over the homesickness. And, uh, and then people began to realize something was, was wrong. Uh, some, some dorm parents, teachers didn't understand it. They were rather rough. Uh, I, I forgive them for that because, you know, the lack of understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, bet I, went, I ended up being taken home. Uh, grew worse. And that's when my, my dad and I went to Australia and I was admitted into a, uh, into a hospital there for uh, uh, people that are mentally ill and uh, was there for about six weeks and uh, put on heavy medication, uh, saw a psychiatrist, great Christian guy by the name of Dr. Smart, uh, which I always think is, is a great name. Uh, he had a cleft palate, very hard to understand, but uh, just I, I just remember really being impacted by him. Uh, went back to the village where my parents lived, and I was homeschooled for two years. Was deemed not healthy enough, 
And so that's what brought us back to the States for the first time in high school, where we ended up in Atlanta, Georgia, the church there sponsored us. And I was, uh, I was, uh, uh, assigned to a, a Christian psychiatrist by the name of Penny Smith, uh, who for the two years I met with her was uh, just a tremendous example and help. And so by my 11th grade, I was, I was clear and uh, have never really not suffered from depression. I, I certainly understand it, you know, when people are depressed because I, the, the, the memories for me are so vivid. It was such a long chunk of my, my, uh, my, uh, re- my growing up. Um, so I, I don't experience depression like that. I, I tell people I can be depressing sometimes, but uh, I don't struggle with depression. That's a that's a joke. And <laughs> <laughs> I'll laugh at. <laughs> so do you think that some of the depression you dealt with was because you had those long periods of time where oh, yeah. you separated from your family? Yeah, I think, yeah, I meant to say that. I think it was a perfect storm. I mean, goodness, I'm, I'm uh, 12 years old. So much is going on in a, in a boy, you know, through puberty. Uh, they, they call it a chemical imbalance. Uh, so, yeah, separation, anxiety, uh, of, uh, uh, you know, dealing. I, there was no, you know, no bullying or I don't remember any bad experiences. I, I had... You know, I still have a level of it's really interesting to do a podcast sometimes with MKs where we could have an honest talk about what, what it's like. Because even at my age now, I can look back and I, I think of individuals, you know, teachers, dorm parents, and there's certain emotions that come with that. Uh, so you could not isolate any particular thing, but it was, I, I, again, I think a perfect storm of a number of things. Okay. Every single one of us, we've all been influenced by our parents in ways that we understand, ways that we don't understand. And even though you were separated from your parents for long periods of time, um, they were still hugely influential upon you. Mm -hmm. Could you tell me more about um, some of the impact and the influence of your parents? Yeah. yeah, I, you know, big picture, uh, what, what was part of my healing was the fact that my parents dropped everything uh, twice to take me to Australia. And then in the end, when they moved to the States, we ended up being in the States for three, almost three years. Uh, they came home with the assumption that they were not going to go back. So they, they gave up their dream. They gave up their calling. And, uh, and that had a tremendous impact. I, I, you know, there are, there are missionary kids I grew up with that are atheists now. And uh, we quietly talk. Again, I think this is a conversation that we need to be more open about. And I, I might do that. I think this would be a good time to gather some people. But, the, you know, there, there are some kids that struggled and the parents were, they were there for the gospel. And, you know, if you follow Jesus, you, you leave father, mother, son, daughter, Mm -hmm. Uh, and we would hear that. I mean, even teachers would tell us that, that, uh, you know, your parents are doing this for Jesus and for the gospel. And, uh, but I certainly never sensed that for my parents. They, uh, uh, they did what, you know, was only available. Um, you know, my goodness, how different would our lives be? I'd be speaking Dutch and living in Holland somewhere and, you know, wearing wooden shoes or no, I'm kidding. (laughs) Uh, but, but yeah, it's, uh, God's grace is, is in all of this, you know, his providence just shows up. I I'm so thankful for my experience, even though a lot of it's been hard. Amen. Amen. Well, you mentioned that you were 
pastor for 30 some years. Uh, ministry has obviously been a huge part of your life. Uh, where did that start? You know, maybe if you could just share about your call. To yeah. Ministry. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I'm glad you asked that. Yeah. I, I grew up, uh, I think with the, you know, I, I came to faith in Christ at the age of six. I understood the gospel um, in fact, we were at a, a conference in the mountains, and after one of the, the children's meetings, I uh, had to use the bathroom, and it was an outhouse, and my sister, older sister Ruthie was outside, and uh, I was inside, and I said to her as I was sitting in the, on the toilet, I said, Ruthie, I want to I give my life to Jesus. So she prayed with me while I was sitting on the bathroom, and and uh, so I, I, I always joke that uh, no one was so relieved as I was at, at that moment. Uh, <laughs> but uh, and God cleaned up my life. But uh, yeah, I understood the gospel. Had to, and you know the the staff and faculty, the missionaries who worked at the school. I was telling my granddaughter this yesterday when I brought her home from Awana. She's seven years old. I said, Honora, uh, they, I, I grew up hearing the gospel so clearly and I, they didn't hold back and, and, you know, cause they, they do that at Iwana too. They're just so clear with the gospel. You know, she was telling me the story last week that they had learned about the rich man and Lazarus. So, so there you're hearing the gospel and even the consequence of eternity separated from God. So, so I, I grew, I grew to love the story of the gospel and, and even high school, you know, I tried to be rebellious once, but it didn't work. Um, you know, so it, it, it was like, it, it's just, you know, the Lord is preserving me here. And, um, uh, so I'd say in high school, I had this deep sense that, that, uh, I was being, uh, called into full-time ministry. Uh, I see it differently now, you know, our denomination, they kind of insist that you have a, a story of a crisis experience as part of our theology of sanctification, and um, I, I do feel like I, I was under pressure to come up with, uh, you know, a, a moment of calling. And uh, I actually did a podcast with one of the professors of Tacoa Falls a, a couple months ago. He wrote a book called Not Called, and he challenges this whole notion of spiritual calling and, uh, and you know, argues more about, uh, you know, understanding your gifts, your talents, your interests, your passions, your context, and then just go do it. You know, we're, we're all called to love Jesus and love the gospel. And uh, so it kind of takes away this kind of, this kind of tier uh, idea that we have of the, of the Christian life. Yeah. Well, I, I love uh, Kevin DeYoung's book, do something, just do something. Yeah. It's a yeah. little, and same idea, you know, you don't have to have this perfect call. It's just a desire to go and serve. And so I, I love that. Did you ever consider anything else? Like, did, I remember in, when I was in college, <laughs> I was thinking uh, maybe maybe business. I don't know what I was thinking at the yeah. time. Would have been terrible at that. But you, you never considered anything else. Well, I did in my my second year of college. I during the summer, I thought I want to be a teacher, and uh, and that lasted about a month because I I just could not shake uh, this this you know desire to. Uh, take Bible classes, you know, understand theology, doctrine better, and and you know, end up taking preaching classes. So, uh, and and even you know, later we'll, we'll talk about this. Some even when I, I I thought we could never get back into ministry, I could not envision myself doing anything else. Yeah, 
Well, tell me about your wife. Tell me about your your marriage, how you met, um, all the details. Well, maybe not yeah. all the details, but... <laughs> yeah, we'll spare you some of the details. Um, yeah, met, met her, sec- her sec- my second year of college, her first year. Um, as soon as I saw her walk into the dining room, I fell in love with her. Uh, she was 17, found out she was engaged to a guy in California. And uh, uh, about a month later, uh, her friend ran to me and said, Mitch, uh, Elaine broke up with her fiance. Uh, and I assumed it, I thought it was because of me, but it was because he was convicted that the guy was not a believer. Oh. Uh, so I, I, so under that false, uh, uh, you know, I pursued her with the false idea that she did it because of me, but, uh, you know, we ended up falling in love and dating <laughs> and, uh, engaged at 18 when she was 18, married when she was 19 and, uh, had our first son, uh, Travis in, uh, in 86 and then have two other, two other children as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, just a remarkable woman. Uh, I, I tell her every day how much I love her and, you know, as we talk about some of the stuff she's gone through, you know, we can we can describe what that, uh, you know, how that how that was tested and challenged in, in many ways. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. How has your marriage helped you to grow in your walk with the Lord? Wow, that's a that's a loaded question. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, there's a there's a sense where those are tied together, right? The way I walk with the Lord is by, by loving my wife and by being a good husband, you know, that's how I demonstrate my, my love to Jesus. I, there's a guy who talks a lot about the uh, uh, Ephesians 2.10 that we are created for good works. And then he talks about what those good works are uh, at the end of Ephesians. It's being a good husband, parents loving their their uh, kids loving their parents, parents loving their kids, wives loving their husbands. Uh, that's that's the good work that we're called to. So, um, and I and I that's back to the what I started out with today. That some of the the what drives me now is is so much more family, and to uh, you know to to love my family and to be a, a support to my wife. Uh, you know, I mean, we've been married forty years. Uh, mm. Coming up in a couple months, uh, it's it's been tough. It's been really tough. Um, it's because of you know some of the things we've gone through. Yeah, um, but it's it you know I we go back to the vows that we made at uh, uh, you know in July twenty third, nineteen eighty three, and those vows I've been I, I've had to revisit those vows a number of times, and it's really been tested. But it's beautiful to uh, to be able to look at each other and talk about how our Faith, our commitment to each other has come out of our, our commitment to Christ. Amen. Well, one of the things that, that one of the dreams that my wife has, and it'll probably never go away unless we actually do it, is to, to move to the UK, move to England and do ministry there, just live mm-hmm. there. I mean, she's just fascinated with all things British and she just yeah. loves it. You you actually lived that. You and Elaine yes. in England for a decade. You served there. And I know it ended really, really hard, but you got to minister there. W- what was that like? 
Oh, it was it was wonderful. We we look back at that being some of our happiest years in ministry, as well as a family. You know, we we're raising our kids in a in, in just a great culture. Um, you know, I was pastoring a church there the whole time, so that was exciting. We saw, you know, it's very very uh, very secular culture, and you know, pastoring a church in in a town of a hundred thousand where there might be four or five other you know, evangelical churches. Uh, but we saw, we saw many, I mean, dozens of people come to Christ and discipled and baptized wow. and uh, the relationships with unbelievers uh, was, the, and still is, we, we still stay connected with people. And, uh, you know, there was a hard part to it too, because when, you know, the way things ended for us, um, we saw the impact of that on new believers and, and, uh, have been burdened that uh, uh, many of them walked away um, and some have expressed that it just was too much for them to see what happened to us. And uh, that's, that's been sad to see. And, you know, we, we, we I, I think our testimony being steadfast though is still something they can shake off. I was talking to a guy probably a couple months ago and he's part of a ministry in Scotland. It's called 20 Scheme. Mm-hmm. And, and he was telling me that a mega church in Scotland is like 50 people. Is, yeah. Was that, was that what it was like in England or is it, is it just? Oh, yeah. Years? Yeah. No, I, I think there's been some new movements there, but, uh, you know, secularism is, is so, uh, so strong. It's the religion, you know, I mean, people, uh, Martin Robinson writes a book called The Faith of the unbeliever which was written in the 90s but it's it was a study of uh of faith in england and um and he you know he ascribes it a lot he has a statement that in world war ii after world war ii the british abandoned god but found no adequate replacement for him Mm. and uh and so they're in a vacuum and uh and and this is becoming true in america but it's so much more pronounced in europe where where secularism is the way of life it's the worldview and uh he he calls it perpet they live in a perpetual presence uh you know you it, it was it was odd for people to ask people do you ever think of the afterlife and they're saying no not really and i'm like really uh you know you're you're dying of cancer and you're more like it's been a good life you know and and, uh, I, you know, so it, it's, it was, uh, but again, I, we've had 20 years to see all of that, uh, you know, s- sneak into our culture here, uh, where, where secularism is, is becoming the, you know, pro- pro- uh, predominant, uh, you know, worldview. Yeah. When I think of 1998, I think of the year that the mm. Chicago Bulls won their last championship with Michael <laughs> Gordon. He retired after that. And I was, I was just a huge basketball fan at the time. Uh, when you think of 1998, uh, what do you think of? And, and I've read your book, by the way, mm. it's Surviving the Fires of Sorrows. And it's, it's a great book. I just want to give a little plug for it. Um, but tell me about 1998, what happened and uh, how'd you get through all that? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about that. Well, first of all, when when Michael Jordan played his last games, I would get up at two in the morning and listen to Armed Forces Radio. And uh, I remember him scoring 
I think two games scoring 40 points and just, just loving that. Uh, but yeah, we were, uh, we were due to come home for our first uh, home assignments after, uh, at that point is after about seven years. Uh, so we, we were in England seven years, but total of 10 years as missionaries there, just to clarify that part. But uh, uh, we were not, not to get into, you know, bogged down with details, but just to give an overview, we were, we had the opportunity to go to Germany to visit the Black Forest Academy with the possibility of sending our oldest son, Travis, who was then 12, uh, to that boarding school after we'd come after we'd been in the States for a year because we were supposed to go back to England. Uh, but, but deep down in my heart, I knew that we would not send him to boarding school, but the, the mission paid for the trip. So it was a free vacation for us. And and we had plans to go to Paris, and then my grandmother lives in Belgium or lived in Belgium. All our family were going to get together there. My parents from the States, my sister from Malaysia. Uh, but when we we're in Germany, my, my wife, Elaine, started to uh, uh, get really sick, uh, throwing up a lot, very dizzy. And she had been dizzy for a whole year, but the doctors could never pin down what was going on. She would have fainting spells, and they... They attributed it to, you know, medication, birth control, whatever. Um, if they had scanned her, they would have found that she had a mass on her brain. And, and so um, after uh, her slipping, literally slipping into a coma during her travel from Germany, Paris, Belgium, uh, by the time we we're in Belgium, four days after her first symptom, she was, she was completely out of it. But uh, we had seen four doctors on that trip and, uh, most of them said she's got a severe tooth abscess. So we drove the nine hours back to England and there she was completely comatose and, uh, ambulance came, picked her up, took her to the hospital. That's when they found the, the mass in her brain and rushed her to Liverpool. And they said, had it not been, uh, had it been 20 minutes later, she would not have survived. They ended up having to take oh. a, uh, a huge uh, tumor from her brain as well as a portion of the brain. And it, it happened to be at the speech center. And, uh, and so she, she was fighting for her life. Uh, she was in a coma for about a month, started coming to, and when she did come to, it became apparent that she was incoherent, um, unable to talk, uh, could not comprehend anything. And so the, by the time she got home, it was a long haul of, uh, of therapy. And we did that for a month in England, ended up coming back to the States as originally planned, uh, but, but really wounded and broken. The goodbye in England was, was just heartbreaking. Uh, again, people were very sad. We were sad. Um, you know, it should have been an exciting closure to that particular ministry because we were going to go back and do something else. And, um, and so we were, we were home for about two weeks. She started therapy and, and, uh, and she has an amazing story. I, I actually, one of my podcasts, I can, I can link it here again is where uh, she and I tell our story to a, uh, a church at Valentine's uh, dinner. And she has a, uh, her angle on, on this is just fascinating, you know, cause she explains what it was like for her as she started to, to, to come aware of what was going on. But, uh, but two weeks after we came back, my oldest son, our oldest son, Travis, started to lose his balance. And, and uh, it took us just a week from him walking, playing soccer, to not being able to walk at all. And, 
We took him to Gainesville. It's about 45 minutes from where we live. They, they did a brain scan, found that he also had a brain uh, tumor. Um, his, unfortunately, was on the brain stem. And so we were told right away it's inoperable. And he had radiation for about six weeks, uh, played soccer again, you know, for about two months. And then his symptoms came back that summer. Uh, so just shy of his 13th birthday, he, uh, August 22nd, 1999, he, he, uh, we were downstairs sleeping with him and uh, heard him take his last breath. And Elaine and I ran to him, uh, sang the doxology together. That was our impulse response. And um, uh, so buried him here in Tacoa, where we are blessed to, to live at again. So we're near the burial place. Uh, his, uh, his grave says he's not here. He's with Jesus in the big, big house. His uh, yeah. favorite song, say favorite song was Audio Adrenaline's song, Big, Big House. Uh, the, the newsboy sang that then, and they were actually in Tacoa doing a concert uh, the night he died. So they, the whole newsboys uh, group came and spent an hour at our house and that night dedicated the concert to Travis and uh dedicated that song to him and then he he ended up passing away at two the, the next morning wow yeah and so, as I, uh yeah as i read the book it's it's such a roller coaster of emotions because he did start to get feeling better mm-hmm. and it seemed like he was he was recovering a little bit and then just a few months later it 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 really hit him hard and i guess yeah. that that's often the way that cancer works, but it must've been so hard for you and Elaine. Yeah. And we knew, we knew because no one survived this, uh, you know, the brain stems your control center. Uh, you know, it's the size of your thumb at the base, at the top of your neck. Um, so the tumor is wrapping around there. Interestingly, he, yeah, he was doing really well in May of 99. We went to Portland, Oregon uh, for council. Uh, ironically, isn't that where council is this coming May <laughs> close. or in a couple of weeks? Yeah, yeah, close to there. And uh, they always have a healing service uh, on Sundays. And I actually gave a testimony of how, uh, you know, the Lord was doing a good work in, in his body. And the next day we came back and I woke up in the morning and Travis comes to greet us and he's stumbling. He's, he's not mm. balanced. And I was like, a, you know, hey, we just came back and spoke at, you know, the 4,000 people about, you know, healing and come back and this is what we face. And uh, so, see, as you know, my book is, you know, struggles a lot with the, you know, the tensions of uh, faith and theology and reality. Yeah. And it's a great book. It's, if you haven't read it, you need to read it. Go yeah. To our story, our story, and we're sticking to it. Amen. Amen. <laughs> so what was it like after Travis's death? You still have uh, two children. You love mm-hmm. them deeply, but you're grieving. And, mm-hmm. and how, do you, how do you work through that? How do you continue yeah. to, to be a parent when you're just, you're longing for your boy and he's not there? And, and not yeah. to mention that you went through with your wife and her health. Mm-hmm. How did you make it through? Yeah, well, we we lived it with our kids, so we didn't shelter our kids. We had conversations around them. We, I, I had the insight right away. I don't know where it came from, but not to 
demand anything from the kids, you know, like, Hey, Brianna, what are you processing? But, but I would talk easily with other people about my processing. And she, I think she and Brett's, she was eight, Brett was six. She was nine, Brett was six at that time. And, uh, and so I think they vicariously benefited from our uh, processing. Um, but also we did something really interesting two weeks before a month before he died, Brett, Travis was actually in a coma and, uh, he had requested, a, for make a wish to go on a boathouse at Lake Lanier. And so when the time came to do it, he was in a coma and we took him anyway. And so at the end of that vacation, Brianna said, this is the best vacation I've ever had. And uh, that that really struck me that, uh, you know, we, we weren't I think it communicated to our two others that we're not going to let this uh, stop us from being a family, having fun. And, um, and and it was interesting the day we got back from that, we, we thought Travis was completely comatose, but I put a alphabet uh, board in front of him and he lifted up his hand, his one hand and started spelling out. Uh, I want to go swimming. And so he named the place, the family. And so we took him to the swimming pool and let him just rest in the water. So, uh, and I think it was about a week later that he passed away. So he, yeah, he was able to communicate uh, pretty much until about two weeks before he passed. Wow. Well, where we're at right now, we have, we have two daughters, twin daughters, and they're a couple months shy of their 13th birthday. And then we have a 10-year-old mm. son and an 8-year-old son. So I, I just, being a parent at a very similar place to where you were when you lost Travis, I just c- cannot imagine mm. going through that. Um, but God's grace is amazing. Yeah, yeah. And it, it sustains us uh, no matter what we're going through. And, and that's um, that's, that's what you see in, in the book, uh, and just through your testimony, I am curious, yeah. that, um, after moving back to the States, you pastored a couple different churches, two different States. I know there's a lot that you could share about those two experiences, but, um, you know, maybe just share about something of the, the healing that you experienced at, at that first yeah. church after you came back. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and, and by the way, I did a, I was interviewed by uh, our common friend, uh, Dan Sams, uh, for his podcast about my experience at the second church, which was hard. So I, I won't cover any of that, but folks could go, go look for that. Uh, but yeah, we were, we were kept on, uh, on medical leave after Travis died for about a year. And, uh, and it became evident that we could not go back overseas. We were too fragile. Uh, things were changing on the, in, in the, you know, there are a couple other things that were happening on the field or in England that was making it difficult to ev- envision us going back. So we, we ended up in Wisconsin. I had a, a friend who was the senior pastor there of a large church and just north of Milwaukee. And, um, and there was an opportunity to serve as, uh, as associate pastor there and we were there five years it was a, a real time of healing for us because the community there just embraced us uh and it also became a place for us to to serve others out of that uh out of that pain and 
uh, I mean, some of our best friends in the world are still at that church. And it's, it's just was a remarkable time. Uh, I had the itch to lead, you know, when you talk about calling versus, you know, gifting passion. And uh, so about five years into that ministry, I was approached to be the lead pastor at a large church in Franklin, North Carolina. Um, and interestingly, and I, I added this to my book, um, right when that was happening, Brett, who was just turning 13, same age as Travis, was also diagnosed with cancer. He, uh, he had lymphoma, Burkitt's lymphoma cancer. And so we were delayed uh, moving to that ministry because of his situation. And uh, he went through chemotherapy. Uh, he's a cancer survivor. Mm. Uh, the story is really still being written there because some of the other, I won't go into any detail at all. Uh, you know about it because we've talked about it, but uh, it has shaped him in a, in a way that's, that's been making it rather challenging for us right now. Uh, you know, some things in the last couple of years that uh, these experiences that he had are, uh, have, have been impacting him in a, in a way that is taking him on a journey that, uh, that we're watching with, uh, with some heaviness. Um, but, uh, but that's all I'll say about that. But uh, yeah, so in 2014, we, uh, we left uh, formally pastoring, and that's when I, I started this ministry, Fruitful Vine Ministry, to help and encourage pastors and ministry leaders, missionaries who are navigating change, going through difficulties and things like that. Oh, tell me a little bit more about that. I'm sure a lot of your listeners know about Fruitful Vine Ministry, but for those who don't, um, mm -hmm. tell us what that looks like, how you come alongside of pastors and, and ministry leaders. I know the podcast is part of that, but could you just share yeah. a little bit? Yeah. By the way, my wife said this morning, she goes, oh, are you listening to, are, are you being interviewed by your other listener? Because I always talk about only having two listeners. <laughs> she hates it when I say that. Uh, but actually we've been, uh, I'm, really encouraged with the number of people listening to these podcasts. It's, uh, it's in the thousands, which is really encouraging. Uh, but yeah, this, this podcast is a, uh, um, uh, a compendium, is that the right word, to, to the ministry. And, uh, but yeah, Fruitful by Ministry, my, my vision for that is to bring courage and perspective when serving gets hard. And so the Before You Quit podcast has that tagline as well. Um, it's really just helping people that are struggling in ministry uh, to not, you know, I never try even in counseling. I don't ever talk people out of what they're going through because I can't, you know, if you have some board members that are making life hell for you, I can't change that, but I can help you to process that. I can help you to think clearly, to respond biblically and so sometimes it's coaching, sometimes it's uh, personal counseling. Uh, the number of times I've met someone who just needed help because they're struggling, it ends up turning into marriage counseling, you know, because the, the impact of all that has spilled over into, into the marriage. So, so it's a, yeah, it, it, the short of it is it's a pastoral ministry to pastors. And it's hugely needed. You know, I, I shared that I've been a pastor for 15 years. Mm -hmm. I interact with mm -hmm. a lot of pastors and, and I know that, that the ministry is, is hugely impactful. It's, it's a big need. So I'll thank you for doing yes. that. Mm -hmm. and, thank you. I want to ask about uh, your call or 
Here's another way to put it. How did you get in? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're gunshot using that word now, are we? <laughs> <laughs> because in the last decade or so, you have been pretty prolific. You've wrote a lot of books. Um, I read The Whisper, and I loved it. It's, it's definitely a page turner, but I know you've written several other books. How'd you get into that? Well, The Whisper, I wrote that after my difficult ministry in North Carolina, I had to process it. And so I sat down to write a story. I, I, I sat down to just tell the story. And I, I got about four or five chapters, you know, just explaining what happened and my emotions and reactions. And I, I said, I'm bored writing this. If I'm bored writing this, people are going to be bored reading it. Uh, so I always joke that I, I then had a novel idea. I'll write a novel. And, and so that the whisper is really that attempt to process my latest painful ministry. And uh, so I put that, all of that into a character, into a story, a uh, lot of intrigue and suspense. Uh, but by the end of it, it really helped me to kind of deal with uh, some of the stuff that, you know, the impact of all of that on me spiritually, emotionally, on my family, on my wife. And, um, and so that, that did well, you know, people read it and liked it. I got a lot of affirmation and, uh, that led to a second book, which has been used. I I had a young guy read it last week and he said, uh, uh, I, it's the best book I've ever written. You know, he's a 20 some year old kid. And he said, I have a friend who's going through exactly what the character in this book is going through and I'm giving him the book and. So when I hear stories like that, it's amazing. And then, and then that, uh, that's called the Guardians. You have the Whisper of the Guardians. And then the Claim um, is the third one. It, they're all allegorical. Um, they're all uh, meant to you know, tell a story with, uh, with a lesson. And, um, and then two years ago, I wrote another, a new series uh, called in, uh, the, the Hunter Marlowe series, In, in Search of Me was my first attempt to write a story without being overtly Christian. And that I think required a lot of creativity. And, uh, and again, the response has been tremendous and I'm just now finishing the sequel to that book. And uh, my editor says uh, of the five novels, she says, this is the best one that I've written. So that's, that's very affirming and exciting. So, and I, 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 I'm not shy about promoting myself because nobody else will. oh good well praise the lord yeah i i'm i have writing aspirations but uh it's hard well you wrote a book you wrote a book and it was very good and i interviewed you for uh on the podcast for it so yeah and i know you've had some articles published as well so so keep writing i i wrote a mini book it's like 60 pages, but, but yeah, yeah, it's a start. I'm proud of anybody who writes. I think it's awesome. Yeah. Well, there, there's a lot to be discouraged about in the church. I don't think anybody's mm. argue with that. Um, and just kind of the general direction that we're headed. What is it that excites you about the church and, and how God is working? Because we know God's always at work. Um, what, what excites you in the, in the church? Mm. Uh, interestingly, this is going to sound odd. What excites me also burdens me, uh, because as the church is becoming more compromising to, to the world, to culture, 
Uh, I mean, the pressure on the church with, uh, you know, we've talked about this before on social justice, on sexuality, uh, you know, homosexuality, uh, the, the compromising that's taking place there in the name of compassion, uh, but only looking at that one side of the gospel, not the law that talks about the sin and the condemnation and how that's seeping into our Christian institutions as well. Uh, what it's doing is it's bringing out uh, those who love the gospel and it's bringing mm-hmm. out people that are saying, hey, no, it, it, it's right to say it's, this is wrong and, uh, and to take a stand on this. And, you know, you and I know that our own denomination is, is going through a lot of soul searching mm-hmm. in this. I mean, with the, the role of women in ministry, which I see as, uh, as really opening a door to, to a lot of other things. Um, so I, I'm, I'm really excited to see, you know, I think persecution is going to come in the form of, uh, of limiting Christians from being able to do things. I don't think we're going to be dragged and beat up and put in prison, but, uh, I mean, this whole thing with artificial intelligence is really mm. scary. And, and you can imagine that, uh, you know, Hey, Mitt, this Mitch Schultz has got money in the bank and he does this podcast about the homosexuality or whatever and you know we need to restrict it It, you know this is this is where it's going and and uh, if you read matthew 24 and other scriptures like this is getting exciting uh but scary at the same time so a bit of an odd way to answer that question but it's just what came to my mind well what i hear you saying is that god is purifying his church yes yes and it's been said for a long time that the church is a mile wide and an inch deep, and there's, there's a lack of depth there. And, and part of it is that here in America mm-hmm. and the Western church, uh, for a long time, it's so easy to be a Christian. But, but that's not the case anymore. At least that's the direction we're headed. And so in, in a lot of ways, it seems to me that God is purifying his church. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and I'm, I'm, uh, I continue to meet individuals, not pastors, just individuals who, you know, I saw on Facebook a young guy at the church where we're attending, and I don't know him that well, but I started seeing some of the stuff he's posting, and I wrote him, and I said, you, you love the gospel, you, you know, and, and he, he shared with me a little bit his journey. And uh, so there, there are people that are, are discerning, and, and know that we're to test everything against the word of God and, and, uh, and, the, and the role, that, the impact that progressive Christianity is having on the church is huge, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and, and yeah, yeah, for sure. Here's, here's my last question for you, Mitch. Yes. Um, pretty much every morning when I come to, to the church here, come to my office, I sing a hymn or two. Mm. And I love doing that. I love singing and I love the old hymns. I love the new hymns as well. But my question is, what's your favorite hymn? Yeah, I did not hesitate uh, to come up with one when you asked me that. It's, uh, it's actually not an old hymn. And I, I was surprised to see it's written by Bill and Gloria Gaither. Uh, but it's Because You Live. Uh, you know, the, the verb, Because You Live, I Can Face Tomorrow, Because He Lives all fear is gone because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. 
And the, the reason that's my favorite song is when Elaine was pregnant with Travis, uh, he was two weeks from being due. And I was at a men's retreat in North Carolina and here's 700 men sang the song. And I remember on the way home singing the, the, uh, the, the, the line, how sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the pride and joy he brings, but greater still the calm assurance this child can face uncertain days because he lives. Amen. And, uh, and never realizing that that child would face uncertain days because, uh, because of Jesus. You know, his providence, God allowed it. But, uh, you know, one thing to say, and this is a great way to wrap up, my son Travis uh, loved Jesus, loved the gospel, loved the word of God in a way that uh, was unusual for a kid his age. And, um, and I'm, seeing the same, I'm seeing the same sort of thing in my granddaughter. You know, she's, she's already exhibiting that same kind of love. We, we, we note that, and it, it's wonderful. Yeah. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Mitch. Thank you, Daniel. This has been a lot of fun. It's, and I know it's kind of role reversal, but, but that's good sometimes. And I also want to thank the listening audience. I trust that you've been blessed, that you've been encouraged, maybe even challenged. And we've obviously seen plenty of evidence of God's grace and his mighty workings. So this is Dan Stegman signing off. And let me leave you with uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. It says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. <laughs>